Hi, I'm Dirk Friel, co-founder of Training Peaks, and you're listening to the Training Peaks Coachcast. I'll be sitting down with expert endurance coaches and amazing athletes, each with special stories to tell. At its heart, Training Peaks is about helping you create the best journey possible towards your endurance goals. We hope these stories inspire you to get out there, train with purpose, and never be afraid to sign up for that next big challenge. Julie Dibbins is a world champion triathlete with over 15 years of experience racing as a professional. Her career highlights include being the 70.3 world champion, a three-time Xterra world champion, and a third-place finisher in the Ironman World Championships. She retired from professional racing in 2014 and turned her attention towards coaching full-time. All right, Julie, thank you so much for joining us today on the CoachCast. Thank you for having me. There are so many cool things I want to dig in with you today. Uh, first of all, two-time Olympian. I mean, just amazing. You know, I don't know too many multi-time uh, um, Olympians. And you represented Great Britain. How? Yeah. You know, tell us how you got from Great Britain to where did you first land in the States or what brought you over? I came over uh, when I was 18 to go to college and swim in college. And I ended up going down to Louisiana State, go Tigers. Yeah. Um, nice. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. I, I think I'd been to the U.S. once before. I've been to Fort Lauderdale for like a swim camp um, and then just decided that summer beforehand that I wanted to give it a try. Um, and one of the swim coaches down at LSU was British and he'd been to the same high school as me. So they did a fair amount of recruiting out of that high school. Um, and I figured I could give it a try for a year. And if I didn't like it, then I'd just go home at Christmas and <laughs> never come back. Yeah. But after I kind of got used to the huge culture shock of being in the deep South and, uh, made some good friends. I, like I loved it and I had a blast and never looked back. Super. So then, uh, triathlon, you jump from swimming right into triathlon or what was the, you know, what was the seed of, to get you into, into triathlon? Yeah. Like I, I think I knew that I was done swimming, uh, my senior year down at LSU and, uh, one of my closest friends in college, uh, Becky Lavelle, um, she had started doing triathlons in the summer um, just to do something different, I think, and do a little bit of cross training. And we always used to run together um, and we were about the same in the pool and she was having pretty su good success early. And she kind of encouraged me to get into it. Like I knew I wanted to keep doing something competitive um, and figured triathlon would just be a, a good fun way to do that. I, you know, I, I had no idea at what level I was going to do it at, but it was just a great transition from swimming all my life to doing something else. And, and you just borrowed a bike or how that yeah, I ended up buying out? her bike off okay. of her. It was like a black Cannondale. Um, I used that and then pretty early, like, I think it was, I don't know, like my second or third race. I did down in Shreveport, Louisiana, and my husband, his boyfriend at the time, ended up just standing next to this guy, Scott Warren, who used to be heavily involved with javelin bicycles. And anyway, they got chatting, oh, yeah. and I did well at the race. So I ended up getting a 
a sponsorship deal with them pretty pretty early and like I, I had some success pretty early so the transition was pretty easy for for me I think I, my aerobic engine was so big from all the swimming <laughs> yeah I mean you killed it on the bike I mean you were just scary you know anywhere from Hawaii you know to the Xterras um it, did that just all of a sudden come natural to you yeah, like I, I don't I don't I don't really know why. Like the only thing I can relate it to, like as a swimmer, I had like a crazy strong kick, um, you know, and so maybe some of the leg strength um, carried over. But I I definitely enjoyed riding really quickly and learned that I was you know decently strong at it just from riding with some of the local guys. Um, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and just, you know, from doing some of the, the first year I raced, you know, as an age grouper and was doing pretty competitively on the bike there. So um, I knew that that was coming pretty naturally to me. It was always the running that was a little bit of uh, Achilles heel for me. So, so now how do you make a jump from local triathlons in Louisiana to ITU and and the whole international scene? How to have that, you know, how do you get the the, the coaches in, in Britain to see you in Great Britain to, to, to get you on some teams. Yeah, it, it all kind of happened crazy fast. And I, I, you know, looking back, I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> um, you know, I, I raced the first year I went, I, I started racing. I, I went to Lausanne, Switzerland and raced the world champs there as an age grouper. And I think that's where like I, I won the age group um, overall. And that's where I think I, I caught the attention of one of the coaches, the British coaches at the time, Chris Jones. Um, and we kind of started communicating a little bit and I decided to start racing pro the next year. Um, and it was that year that I actually ended up qualifying for Sydney. So it all happened wow. like crazy, crazy fast. Wow. And we were living in Houston at the time. Um, so yeah, I qualified for Sydney, but unfortunately I didn't get to race because I got injured um, right before I flew down to the Gold Coast. Uh -huh. um, so two-time Olympian with the asterisks. I like yeah, that. well, still, I mean, to qualify, <laughs> and I think what only three did only three members go. Yeah, represent. Yeah, and that was the first Olympics that had it. Yeah, it was, it was Sydney. super exciting. Um, so decided to move on and dabble in some Xterra and some seventy point threes. Well, dabble is, uh, you know, doesn't give it justice. I mean, ITU 2006 and then world champion Xterra, is that correct? In 2007, eight and nine? Yeah, that sounds right. Did, did you not have a learning curve to, to that portion of it? Oh, at I least? definitely did. I definitely did. And I, I think I just, I kind of just got lucky in that the Maui course at the time when we raced over in McKenna, I think it just suited my kind of, style like yeah there was some definitely some technical parts like descending down the plunge but as far as the climbs go they were kind of long power climbs um and i like that first year i just rode my bike in total fear um yeah. and i knew that i just had to ride every section that i could ride as hard as possible um, in order to get a gap for the run well more <laughs> to get a gap <laughs> for the descent <laughs> <laughs> got it got it and then also for the run like i yeah 
like I ended up having a good run there that first year. So I think that just gave me the confidence. Um, but like the thing, the thing with Exeter is like, it's so course dependent because the courses can be so different that it really can suit certain athletes. So say like, I really think I was lucky in that, that course definitely suited my style of, of athlete. Wow. So then you double up. You're double world champion in 2009, mm-hmm. 70.3 world champ and Exeter world champ. Um, you know, and I, I saw a quote from you that said, uh, when I got confident, I was hard to beat, like in 2009. Yeah. Um, but it was hard for me to gain confidence. You know, when you're training eight months out from a world championship and you're trying to either defend or create a new world, you know, become a new world champion, you know, what are the, how do you gain that confidence for yourself? I think for for me the biggest the biggest way for me to grow confidence was just in my training um and staying healthy like if you go back and look at my career I had I probably spent 50% of my time out injured I had good belief in my own ability if I stayed healthy and if I could get the training done um but that wasn't always possible um right. so I would get confidence as I say, just from being consistent in my training. Um, and I knew that if I could get the training done and put myself on the start line, I had a good chance of being competitive. Um, but there, there was years when I didn't race, like two years at a time where I, I didn't race because I would battle with surgeries and this, that, and the other. And obviously it would take me some time to build back from those but I like I really did get lucky in the timing of my injuries because they like when I qualified for Athens like I barely raced in between Sydney and Athens but I got healthy in 2000 end of 2003 yeah and those injuries you know definitely as you said you miss you know several years um what kind of advice do you have for athletes um to get through an injury you know how does that mentally play out and you definitely had a lot of experience you know doing that yeah it's a bit of that going on right now where people are, they may not have injuries, but they don't know when their next race is, you know, similar to an injury. So what kind of tips are you um, giving your athletes now? Um, Yeah, for sure. There are a lot of similarities between, I think, having an injury and what we're going on with, you know, right now with COVID-19 and stuff. Um, The biggest thing, and you hear people, other people say it, is just to really focus on doing what you can do and doing it really well and not allowing yourself to think about what you can't do. So for me, a lot of the time, I wasn't able to run for six or nine months. And it would be really easy to get down and depressed and sad about the fact that I couldn't run. I love to run and I wanted to, you know, continue to progress at it. Um, but it, it did me and I learned over time, like it did me no good to think about that and just really focus on me waking up every day and being the best athlete that I could be, um, swimming, biking, doing my strength, doing my rehab, recovering, like just checking all the boxes that I could and just not allow myself to think about the things that I couldn't do. Yeah. I think about that now, you know, where so many people are goal oriented, it's all about the race, the race day. And now without having that, you know, there isn't that certainty so, you know, tell me more about that transition from, from racing into coaching. Um, and was that something that you always wanted to do? You could have done anything after racing, you know, what, what really 
um, you know, got you thrilled about getting into coaching? Like I, I my education at LSU, um, like I got a, a degree in, in uh, kinesiology and then a master's in exercise physiology. And I'd always had that interest in sports science and understanding, you know, just why things work and some things don't work in this sporting arena. Um, I don't think I, if you'd asked me 15, 20 years ago, if I would be doing what I was doing now, I don't think I would have said that. I think I would have been more, you know, working in a lab and testing athletes and doing that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I did start doing some coaching, um, to help pay the bills, you know, during some of those times when I was out injured. Um, and I, I definitely always enjoyed it. Um, I stepped away from it when I stepped up to racing Ironman purely because I didn't have the energy Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> or the time to put into coaching. Um, but then when I was somewhat forced into retirement due to another injury, um, it was like definitely the natural progression, you know, and what I wanted to create was just in my mind, like an optimal environment for people to be able to do what they need to do to be the best athletes they could be. And that, you know, kind of arose from me moving to Boulder um, 10 years ago um, and realizing, you know, this is obviously a great place to train. It's not for everybody. Um, But I, you know, I loved it. Um, You know, getting to work with some of the pros that I do, it's super important that they do enjoy their training and not take it, like we all take it seriously, don't get me wrong, but don't take it so seriously that you can't enjoy it. Um, so creating like that squad environment here where it's much more like nothing is ever ever mandatory. People can drop into sessions as and when they want within the group, but it also allows people that I work remotely with that don't get to live in Boulder or don't choose to live in Boulder that they can come to Boulder, um, and drop in and they know that they'll have people to train with at the same time. So people like Matt Hansen will come two or three times a year. Yeah. Uh, you know, it kind of reminds me of the Kenyan runners, you know, who kind of have these camps that can always, you know, go back to and go back to the roots, if you will. And mm-hmm. to have that stability and have your athletes be able to come back into this squad and, 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 uh, rely on that and build that trust. Um, you know, you talked about time and energy for coaching and certainly that's, that takes a lot of time and energy is, you know, what does the typical, typical week look like? Typically, we'll have um, like I like I like face to face interaction with my athletes. Um, like I enjoy it, um, but also you know, like all coaches will know, it's a lot. You just learn so much more seeing them before the workout, talking to them, and then obviously seeing them move and execute the workout. Um, to me, like that's. That's the fun part of coaching. Like sitting down and writing the program is a little bit more monotonous. Um, it needs to get done. Um, so like a typical week, we'll have three to four swim sessions that I encourage most people to be at. Um, we swim over at Rally Sport. Um, yeah, like Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. And then in the summer, we try to get in a, a lake 
um, on a Wednesday afternoon, which is super fun. And then we'll have a couple of group run sessions um, a week. Typically, it's only two. Um, And then just because I still love to ride my bike, I try to get out with most people um, as much as possible on the bike. Um, You know, I, I not only do I still love to ride my bike, but I also think, again, like riding with people, you get to learn I think a lot more um, from just, you know, seeing how they pedal the bike, um, what what happens when they start to get tired. And yeah, I find it fascinating riding alongside them and trying to hang with some of the guys. Like, I think they secretly like it when they can drop me. <laughs> well, that's hard to do. I, I'm, I'm going to, a little offshoot of this is, were you not second at the Leadville 100 mountain bike race in 2018? I was. Second overall female against the young ones. <laughs> I, we won't say your age, but no. you know, uh, that is, I mean, truly you're, you're still an elite athlete there with that type of result. Um, so obviously you still love the bike. Yeah. Any kind of lessons learned from what, what was that? An eight hour, eight hour day. Yeah. I wanted to go sub eight, but I didn't quite make it. I'd forgotten that it's actually what, like 103 miles. <laughs> so the whole time I'm calculating, I think I think I got this, and then I realize I'm like, there's no way. <laughs> I can't even see the town yet. Yeah, it's it's almost Ironman um, time wise. Yeah. Any lessons learned from that type of long mountain bike race that that you're bringing back to the squad? If if you talk to people about like that knew me when I was racing and I raced against, like I was historically bad with nutrition and hydration. And so, like, I knew going into Leadville, and the first year I did it, unfortunately, I got sick the night before. But um, mm. I I knew that I had to take care of myself, like, on the, the hydration and nutrition front, especially up at ten to 12,000 feet. Um, and I, I think I probably still fell a little bit short, but I did pretty darn good for me. <laughs> Yeah. So, what was your biggest, maybe hurdle uh, nutrition-wise in your in your career, or you know, what was the thing that kind of held you back on the tr- nutrition side? You think I just didn't eat enough. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um, like I, I could get away with it for obviously ITU, Xterra, and seventy point three. Like I had a couple of um, special bonkages at 70.3 but for the most part I could get away with it um like I just I remembered like I only actually did three Ironman twice in Kona and once in Coeur d'Alene wow um which I think sometimes shocks people good good record yeah (laughs) um but in Coeur d'Alene like I was literally just having such a blast on the bike that I just got really complacent and forgot to eat which Mm. sounds so silly Mm-hmm. Um, but I got really behind on my calories and it was, I don't know, about mile 13 or 14 on the run that things got pretty ugly. And I realized, you know, I just literally needed to eat some food. I ate a power bar. It took me about three miles to get that in. And then I managed to get right back on pace. Yeah, that is definitely, you cannot hide from no. calorie restrictions and <laughs> 
uh, and Iron Man. No matter where you live, there's, we have different rules around COVID-19, but for the most part, we don't have racing and it, it's kind of, I don't know, putting a damper on some tr- aspects of training like swimming. Yeah. Um, you know, what, what are, how are you guys making up for that? Yeah. Um, like it, the per- percentage of people that have like the endless pools is pretty small. Um, a couple of athletes do. Um, most athletes, we're doing some stretch cord work. It might be 20 to 30 minutes, four or five times a week. But for the most part, we've kind of just accepted swimming's not happening for a little while. And just, again, coming back to focusing on doing what we can. Um, I'm working a lot more specifically on the bike than anything. Um, like trying to identify those areas of weakness in their physiology and working on those, whether that's on the trainer or outdoors, um, keep the volume down to try and keep them healthy. Um, but yeah, like I say, identify any areas of weakness that we can work on that we might not normally have the energy or the time to do. And I think I'm starting to see, especially in the last two weeks, um, like that extra energy that they have from not swimming. I think I underestimated how big that is and how it's really coming out now in like better power files, which is kind of cool to see. Yeah, definitely. I mean, what kind of athletes will, will come out of this? What are the different profiles of athletes? I mean, you can certainly see some that you know, certainly there can be some depression this, you know, going through this. Um, obviously people are, have lost jobs. Um, family, you know, is number one. Um, so certainly we know triathlon is on the last thing of some people's minds. Um, but other than that, if you are training, um, you're advising maybe give up some fitness, give up, give up some volume and maybe specialize a little bit more on, on the weakness. Um, what do those type of workouts look like that you're talking about? Um, like it's, it's very individual. Um, but it definitely initially that was the first thought is like, okay, we don't know when the races are. A lot of them, it came at a time where a lot of athletes were getting ready for Galveston or Oceanside, um, St. George, you know? So a lot of athletes were, we're actually pretty freaking fit right and it is came at the worst time because it's such a bummer because we never got to see um like how fit they really were but so it was a unique position i think for coaches most of the time when you want somebody to lose fitness or form they kind of just take a break take some time off whereas the last six weeks yeah we knew we wanted them to lose some fitness and some form but not so much in case they came out and said, oh, we might be racing in have many weeks, um, but also to help keep them motivated. So it's an interesting challenge to actually want them to lose fitness. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, That's, yeah, not always the case. Yeah, like I've never really had to do it like that. So it was definitely challenging and I struggled with it for a while. And then I think once we, just sat down and really identified these areas that we wanted to work on. It gave me like real focus in the training that I was setting, but also the athlete 
if they came out and said that we're, there's going to be no races today or no races this year, would that change what you do today and tomorrow? Good question. And for most people, it doesn't change a thing like because they love the process. They love the training. And it just means we'll get them ready for next year. But it allows us to just be a little bit more organic with the training and, and build. Uh, but there was a couple of people that were like, yeah, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I want to take two weeks off. I'm like, well, that's what we should do then. You know, right. like, yeah. If you're that stressed out, which people obviously are, like, then it's being counterproductive to keep pushing, pushing, pushing. Um, yeah, that is, that is a, a great question everybody should ask themselves. And if you come to that conclusion that, yes, I would take a couple weeks off, then you know, that can give you a better sense of purpose. Um, you, you, you can now readjust um, and, and live with it and be comfortable with yourself and, and you come out of it stronger. Yeah. Um, what about extra strength work? Are you, are you seeing athletes that could, could benefit from, you know, there's naturally, they could use some more strength, um, maybe not max power, but muscular endurance, or just are you adding in extra strength training to any, anyone's programming? Uh, like strength on the bike or strength? Well, and I think it, it could be, you know, either. It can be yeah. total functional bike strength or it could be in the gym or just with bands or just in general. Are you, are you, are, are there some athletes that could benefit from just some more strength work? Yeah, like 100%. I think the hard part with that is, you know, the logistics of it um, and whether people have the right equipment needed. Um, and also, you know, a lot of my guys here in Boulder and actually remote work with some of the strength coaches here in Boulder, so Aaron Carson and mm -hmm. Kevin Purvis. Um, so they were not going to have access to them or as much access. So it made it challenging. I think more than strength, I've been trying to drill into people like, yeah, you have an extra six to eight hours a week where you're not swimming, like use that time to work on mobility or stretching or just time that you stability stuff like time or things that you don't normally have the time or energy to do because we're so focused on getting ready for this race or that race. Um, like my athletes are, I think pretty diligent and disciplined at doing all their strength work anyway that that hasn't really changed much but the side the stuff outside of that as i say mobility stability just taking care of your body um that stuff i've been you know trying to encourage people to do so that might be you know like just bounce work standing on one leg and or making sure your big toe you can point your big toe down <laughs> Little you're like that. yeah you're describing me i uh right. have discovered uh you know more courses online instagram live workouts mobility workouts that i never did before um we even have a, a you know a yoga session uh for training peaks employees and it's now virtual on wednesdays at noon and i never attended those in person right. but now i do in zoom you'd rather go do something else and <laughs> now you have the time Exactly. Yeah. So that's definitely helped me out and definitely a good words of advice. Um, what about, uh, the whole virtual world and, and, you know, yeah. Swift racing and Ironman VR and, um, you know, how has that affected your athletes or some of them loving it? 
others don't do it at all. What you yeah. want to tell us about that? I say for the most part, it's been really good. Um, like, yeah, we don't even really need to go down the road of the fairness of it because that's not the point of it to me. Right. And I, you know, I remind my right. athletes of that. It's such a great tool motivationally for them right now. And I, I don't know how many athletes I've had. Probably 15 athletes have done either the VR Ironman VR race or the Zwift races okay. the week that they've been having. And every time it's like, oh my God, like best power file ever. <laughs> and it's so, it is a great tool to motivate them and it brings out the best athlete in them on the day just because of the competitive fire in them. Mm-hmm. But like just reminding them that we can't compare to other people because there's still so many uncontrollables in the virtual racing world um, that it's really easy to get frustrated with. Um, Or I think it can inflate your ego a little bit more than, you know, so maybe you're winning some of these races and then when we do finally get to race, um, you think you're biking really well because you've been kicking ass in these Zwift races and then all of a sudden you get your ass beat. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you know the Zwift world for, for right now is not accounting for headwind, <laughs> right? You know, and you can hold the power, you know, up in the hoods, and you know, really standing up or whatever it might be, but you can't stand up in a headwind or be up on the hoods, and yeah, you know, what can you throw down when you're in an arrow position, and right, uh, or, or or you know, in a lot of turns and skills involved, obviously, and in, in real world racing, which is certainly an aspect I always loved, was that skill side of thing and yeah. strategy, but like I think. It's just, it's a great way to motivate people right now. And for the people that, yeah, well, specifically working on biking or bike power, it's been great. Um, but it, yeah, it comes with its own issues. Yeah. Well, uh, Julie, we've got to wrap things up a bit here, but you know, how can, you got to tell me one thing. When we go to your website and it says uh, you can, just offer me cookies and I'll give you some advice. <laughs> what is the deal with cookies? I don't I don't know. Like ever since um I started training for Iron Man, that's when like my cookie issue ar- ar- arose, I think. Um kind of You didn't have enough you needed cookie. cookies on, on it more in the race. What's that? You needed to eat more cookies well, in Iron Man's. But actually, I don't know if you've heard of them. They sell them at Whole Foods, uh, Carol's Cookies. Okay. And they have, I think it's 800 or 900 calories per cookie. Whoa. Is that right? a brick? Yeah. It, but it's amazing. And actually, around the time I was yeah, racing Kona, my manager, Franco, actually reached out to Carol about a sponsorship deal. And it was amazing because mm. she sent me, like I don't know, 80 or 100 Cook, these Carol's cookies that I could throw in my freezer. But at, at that point, like training for Iron Man, like I knew that I was not the best eater in the world. And I just literally needed to get the calories in, you know, as best I could. So if that was me going out and riding with a Carol's cookie in my pocket, then, you know, I was onto a winner. Um, so I think it kind of started from there. But yeah, I don't know. Something about a good cookie. So the best cookies in Boulder right now, mm-hmm. in my opinion, are the crumble cookies. But I'm not sure crumble. if they're still. I have, at where? 
Uh, Crumble Cookie is in 29th Street Mall. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Hard for people to get to if they're yeah. not in Colorado. <laughs> well, we usually don't do ads in yeah. the Coach Cast, but there you are, <laughs> a couple uh, cookie ads for you. And we should be doing this over cookies and milk, um, we but we'll, we'll catch up on that another day. How can people contact you or follow you? Um, I have a Twitter account, Julie Dibbins. Instagram is Dibbo4, or we have a JD Crew um, account on there. And then a, my coaching website is just juliedibbonscoaching.com. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much, Julie. Awesome. Uh, hopefully, the world gets, gets back to normal here soon enough. We can have some racing the rest of the year, yeah. late, later part of the summer. So, thank you so much for spending some time with me. Awesome. Thanks, Dirk. It was fun. Thanks for listening to the Training Peaks Coachcast. For more episodes, visit trainingpeaks.com/podcasts. Please head on over to Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you find your podcast to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Until next time, get out there, train with purpose, and never be afraid to sign up for that next big challenge.